Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 68. My name is Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Dr Elsa Van Gardenen, who talked about her role as CEO of Alcelli and an innovation solution for proton therapy. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guests for this evening, uh, Melanie Clarkson and Ricardo Kine. They will be discussing advanced practice. Hello, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. So for anyone who doesn't know you both, um, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your career? Should we start with Mel? So I'm Melanie Clarkson and I currently work at Sheffield Hallam Uni. Um, I'm senior lecturer in advanced practice for radiotherapy and oncology, as well as looking after the undergraduate students in Newcastle and Middlesbrough. Um, I am API committee member um, for the Association of Advanced Practice Educators, committee member for RAG, um, and also a reviewer at Health Education England for credentials and programme accreditation and obviously working on this project with Rick. Thank you. And Rick, can you introduce yourself? Thank you. I will indeed. So I'm Rick Kine and I'm a therapeutic radiographer. But my actual role is I'm a professor of allied health education and I'm also head of school for the School of Health and Social Care Professions at Buckinghamshire New University. So I have a kind of strategic leadership role at the moment <clears throat> I still do some teaching, but also have a radiotherapy teaching workload at City University as an honorary contract. So still have my hands in the whole radiotherapy oncology teaching, marking assessment as well. And like Mel, very much involved with the College of Radiographers, with HE on this project and previous projects. And I am really passionate about therapeutic radiography. Um, I think it's really important to try and showcase all the great work that everyone is doing. Uh, and really support each other and push our profession forward. And I think these kind of platforms, working with yourselves, working with the lovely Mel, it's really crucial for us to start showcasing and promoting the stuff that we're doing because we, we need to be kind of heard and, and, and seen. Best AHP job, isn't it? Basically, that's what you're both implying. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, we're all very biased towards therapeutic radiography. But um, Rick, what's advanced practice to you? For me, it's very much about the kind of the role development, very much about how a therapeutic radiographers can be involved in a range of um, activities, which very much for me covers the those four core domains that we're always going about, which is the clinical domain, the education, uh, the, the research and that kind of um, leadership aspect as well. I think the role really allows us to be able to have input into those areas and the roles have an opportunity for us to be able to demonstrate these areas. And I think for me, if we're able to kind of showcase those skills within each of those areas, that is what advanced practice is very much all about. It's that kind of next step for us as therapeutic radiographers 
in, in you know pushing ourselves uh, kind of as I said the role development the specialization the kind of enhancing our roles much further as well so for me it, it's about that next step of what we can do uh, as uh, practitioners thank you Mel what are your views absolutely it is definitely about covering the four um, core domains um, and it's about showcasing the fact that therapeutic radiographers and all of those actually in AHP have got the expertise in various areas and the skills to be able to share tasks with our medical colleagues um, and that I think as everything's evolved that perhaps actually our expertise is what's the word without <laughs> offending anybody but our expertise you know comes to the forefront in some situations you know if you if you need, need to make a decision about an immobilization or a patient setup or something like that previously it would be that you would get the medic to come down and how often would the medic turn to you and say well what do you think so it's about utilizing our professional identity and our professional skills and recognizing that they can be used with advanced clinical decision making, problem solving, autonomous practice to share those tasks with our medical consult our medical practitioners. Can I ask, why do you think advanced practice has evolved? Because as you've kind of said, the medics would have already kind of been there, supported us, made some of those decisions. But how's it even come about? I think if I may start off first, I think for me Kind of role development and advanced practice has always been there. It's been really very well established. It's never been formalised or acknowledged until pretty much the last couple of years. And even now, you know, it's it's so apparent across all AHP kind of workforce delivery. And I think what AHPs are doing is, as Mel said, you know, showcasing and promoting it into that point now that advanced practice is very much the key hot topic everywhere. And it's perceived as impactful. There's lots of research out there now showing that, that, that these roles are really important to, to not just service, but to the patients, but also ourselves as practitioners, the opportunity for us to progress in our career, to have that trajectory now of going to a speciality. And again, as Mel quite rightly said, you know, it's about using our expertise. It's about also having that kind of synergistic relationship with our clinicians. You know, yes, the clinicians are important to that journey, but actually we need to think about the bigger picture. There needs to be a consideration really about that a, a different workforce, in this case, a non-oncology workforce existing of radiographers, dietitians, physios can actually support and provide the care that a traditional medical consultant has always provided. And we know it works. We know that it's impactful. We know that um, the quality is still there. Uh, and that there's a benefit for everyone uh, as a result of having the advanced practice or consultant practice roles as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, <clears throat> you know, I think in the past we've often been seen as replacing medical jobs. And I think that's why it's important now we change that narrative to sharing tasks. And, you know, it is about career progression and that um, utilisation of the workforce can enhance the you know the skills in the right place at the right time for the patients and they get a better patient care better patient experience because ultimately that's what we're all here for is to support the patient so if we can you know look at our workforce and use it effectively for the patient 
then that's theoretically what we're doing with advanced practices. We're utilising all of that skill set in the right way. I think the value of advanced practice, as you said, but both of you have alluded to, is it has always been there. I think um, people presume that if you want to do advanced practice, you want to take roles away from the clinicians. And that's something that I've definitely had in feedback. But I think it's trying to showcase that actually, no, it's more than that. It's not just being someone's deputy. It's actually that role needs to be developed into certain things as well. And I know the value for patients is, is you know, it's extreme because you are proving your worth in four different pillars, as you said. And if you get to consultant practice as a fifth pillar, so like kind of honing all the skills and stuff in working towards a doctorate, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I love it, um, even if it's not technically my title, but being involved in it is really exciting. Do you think with advanced practice moving kind of to to a way in which actually it's integrating services i'm just thinking about where therapeutic radiographers sit without having advanced practice or specialist roles extended roles you know we do sit within that environment of our radiotherapy department without kind of reaching out maybe necessarily to other professions do you think advanced practice has that ability to integrate cancer pathways better for patients absolutely because i think one of the things that we found when we were writing the framework was in non-surgical oncology there is a wide range of professionals who support our patients with care and for therapeutic radiographers you know our degree is in radiotherapy and oncology and it's the and oncology bit that often gets forgotten about and actually you know there is there is advanced practitioners out there who are therapeutic radiographers who have pushed those boundaries, who are working with that radiotherapy and oncology knowledge, but working in malignant haematology or working in frailty. And, you know, we come with a lot of transferable skills and knowledge that can be utilised in different pathways. Um, and, you know, I would love to see more of that, of us being able to expand into those services because... To have that, you know, if we can if we can treat frailty well, then we can give those patients a better radiotherapy or chemotherapy or you know sacked treatment option, because we manage the frailty to be able to give them the best cancer care we can. Um, so I would love to see that for us to be able to use that transferable knowledge and skill. I suppose that's something that could transfer into primary care. I mean, themes that have come into for this around like late effects on the podcast, obviously patients going through lots of diagnostic tests for something that potentially if they've come to see a therapeutic radiographer or even an experienced nurse in radiotherapy that actually you could have said well it's two months post-treatment it's most likely related to the treatment you know instead of putting them through extra CT scans more worry more scanxiety so I know there's a lot of work going on in the primary care for that as well. I think also it's learning from each other as well because we've got this kind of um, diverse workforce everyone's got their skill set but actually some of the skill sets can be transferable some of the skill sets we can upskill ourselves but equally we can learn from others about good practice sharing practice in their specialities and, and I think as Mel said that's something we hope that this work we're doing can also try and encourage uh, and drive drive our kind of um, vision of that kind of you know sharing of knowledge upskilling each other transferable skills etc etc So you talked about a project that you're part of. Um, 
do you want to explain what your roles are within that project and maybe some of the main aims and outcomes? So the the main kind of area we're looking at is this non-surgical oncology. So not only is it therapeutic radiography, it also covers the SACT and also acute oncology. And um, what really happened was there was two kind of issues that were going on that we've tried to capture and now make it into kind of one whole common kind of goal. There was the work that I was doing prior to this particular project, which is looking at opportunities for advanced clinical practice in, in oncology and therapeutic radiography was the exemplar. And we found that there was lots of issues regarding um, standardization, lack of um, resources, issues with professional identity, which really kind of allowed us to then think, okay, what do we need to do to try and solve some of these issues? We knew there was an opportunity to advance practice roles, but we needed to try and ensure that we had this kind of standardization and um, all the challenges were addressed. At the same time, we also had the, the North East um, and North Cumbria kind of region who were looking, who were doing a service review essentially, and they found there were so many challenges and issues themselves, which are very similar to the stuff that I had revealed in my project. And Mel was very much um, instrumental with the HGE side at the time of that particular kind of um, work they were thinking about doing to address those issues. And it just happened that my work, the recommendations were aligned with what the North East and North Cumbria HGE region were trying to address. So rather than doing two separate work and duplicating each other, we decided to kind of join forces in view of the common agenda, which was to try and look at some of these challenges that came about and what we can do to try and help with issues such as service pressures, capacity, lack of speciality in staff and also we noticed there was a deficit in training and that non-surgical oncology was very much this consultant-led speciality but they had gaps in their own training. And one way of trying to support that was having these advanced clinical practitioner roles come in to try and help the service. So for us, it was quite timely, wasn't it, Mel, that we were both able to join forces. And as therapy radiographer, therapeutic radiographer, I beg your pardon, it was also really Oh, you nearly got told off by Joe there, Rick. I know, I know. Sorry, Joe. I saw you just panic there. (laughs) (laughs) She gave me that lecturous look of, just try that again one more time, you're on the right tracks. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was timely that we were able to represent therapeutic radiography. Um, as part of this project and we were very much kind of asked and um, took to work with HEE under Bev Harden who's been on the show before and likewise Charlotte Beardmore and Spencer Goodman and the college were really keen for us to be able to kind of support that that drive so I'm going to hand over to Mel because Mel's got a lot more information about the HEE part that she was working with that particular area. So I was a bit of a sort of right place right time sort of thing so obviously our undergraduate students are in the northeast and I'm in the northeast as well because I live up in Durham um, and Health Education England um, appointed a clinical oncology specialist to really to write an educational pathway to support advanced practice because they evidently didn't have enough clinical oncologists they couldn't appoint to them and within their service review um, they needed to do something. So in the northeast, critical care had been really, really successful about nine years ago at implementing advanced clinical practice. So because they'd had such a positive experience, it was natural that then they would sort of look at this for non-surgical oncology. Um, so the person they appointed was Dr. Nicola Story, who was um, a consultant that I worked with for years. You know, she was there when I first started 
back in the last century, but we'll not talk about that. Um, and, you know, Nicola and I know each other really well. So Nicola had said, do you want to collaborate? Do you want to come into the group? Which I did. Um, and it's just really absolutely flown from there. I mean, it, you know, the project itself was a pilot for the Northeast. So we have got a number of practitioners who are using this framework, who are on apprenticeship courses in the Northeast, um, who are, you know, developing, developing themselves as professionals, developing the service. And I think that's really key to get across because a lot of, there is a lot of misunderstanding about advanced practice, about titles, about levels of practice and about everything else. And it's not about replacing the doctor. It's about the, the level of service that we give. And we've really tried to make that evident within the document that we wrote. So we have gone through many a draft. <laughs> um, and currently we are at the final draft, hopefully. Um, and just completed our local evaluation and about to go to national consultation um, on the document. So fingers crossed. Sounds incredible. Um, lots of work's gone in. I have a question which might seem like a silly question, but HE is obviously Health Education England. Does that mean this sort of work and any advanced practice also goes into the devolved nations as well? Because don't they have a separate... Have I asked a question you didn't want me to ask? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a really, really good point. Um, and obviously it is English-based, but we do have the backing of the College of Radiographers, um, and it is something that they're supporting. The document as well that we um, have designed is... Because we didn't want to start from scratch, there is loads of information. You know, advanced practice has been around within oncology for a long time, so there is, there is information out there. Let's not reinvent the wheel. So we had the multi-professional framework. We had various scopes of practice. We had the medical oncology training curriculum and timely, the specialist registrar training curriculum as well had been rewritten and was re-released. Um, so we've been able to utilise that document so we are working with the Royal College of Radiologists as well to sort of consider whether they would want to get on the back of it as well um, so hopefully yes you know it's supported by Health Education England but I would really be hopeful that the other devolved nations would also pick this up um, I have dissertation students from on my programme from all over the world and obviously in devolved nations and I know some of them are doing projects around advanced clinical practice the lack of education training and pathway so again why invent the wheel take something and test it you know because that what we've written may not work um and it may not work for everybody but we've tried our best we've worked with a wide variety of stakeholders we have gone through many a draft We've gone through local evaluation. We've gone through a set of critical friends from the Royal College of Radiologists, the College of Radiographers, um, Health Education England, um, Northern Cancer Care Alliance. So, you know, we're really passionate about this project, but we also need to make sure it works. And not just for therapeutic radiographers, it has to work for all of the professions who are working in non-surgical oncology so that our care for the patients is as is, is best as it can be within the restrictions that we've got, which I think is fairly evident and you probably all agree that are a massive challenge for us. And for us, the, the, the design, it needs to be fit for purpose. You know, that's the key thing. And as Mel said, you know, this kind of wider clinical 
working group that we had to make sure we represented everyone across non-surgical oncology, all the stakeholders that are involved. I mean, we want to get this right. Uh, we admit that there's been lots of versions, but we're happy with the number of versions that are available. We just want to make sure that the final version is fit for purpose for everyone to use. And it was just timely again that the Northeast had this service review, but actually we've used them as the exemplar of how this is all going to work. And then they can cascade all this information to the rest of the other faculties and regions nationally and you know, hopefully use it and they can adapt to it as they need for their services. So for us to have that kind of resource and to be able to share it and hopefully disseminate it is gonna be really, really important. So we have to get it right. We really have to get it right because it impacts on so many services, so many colleagues, staff, etc., etc. So the national consultation, which we will um, disseminate this to all the communities, will be really important for us to get their feedback to then allow us to make the final amendments ready for it to be issued, um, formally issued. So I'm thinking, I'm out there in practice. I'm an advanced therapeutic radiographer. I'm already doing what I think is advanced practice. And then I'm hearing of all these frameworks that are potentially coming in, what's gonna happen? You know, what, what in terms of the implementation, how would someone go from maybe reviewing what they're currently doing? And then obviously, if they realize that they're not currently at advanced practice from the framework that you've created, what then are the implications of that? I mean, the key thing to kind of remind everyone is that this is not to disadvantage anyone at all. In fact, we think that this curriculum framework, and Malcolm Smallman this, is a more of a supportive mechanism. And it's a supportive mechanism not just for the, the person in this role, it's also a supportive mechanism for the manager, for the service, uh, and for the wider good for, for our profession. So. You're right. If someone did say, well, I'm, I think I'm an advanced practitioner, but, you know, I'm not. What am I going to do? Well, then a conversation needs to be had with them and their manager about let's support you to get you to that post, that position, um, using the, the, the resources, the multi-professional framework, this curriculum framework, extra training to support them to get them to that level. So we're not out to disadvantage them, it's the opposite. See as a positive way of trying to equip them to get to that level to say, I am an advanced practitioner because I meet all the four core domains. I've got a job plan, which is robust. I'm able to evidence all my work with all this, um, with the frameworks and what I need to demonstrate my skills. And we've got a, a tangible framework for them to use to allow them to, to train and get to that level. Would you agree with that now? Absolutely, and I think as well with the framework, what we've done is we've tried to make it really flexible. So to give you a very loose outline of what the framework looks like, so it, the way it's set up is very similar to the specialist registrar training, and that is because we know that the clinical supervisor is going to probably be an oncologist at this point in time. As we move forward, hopefully it'll be more advanced practitioners, but at the moment that's what's going. That's primarily probably what's going to happen. So the way we've set it up is with capabilities in practice. So there is general capabilities in practice. So these are the behaviours that we would expect at advanced level practice. So it's meeting the four pillars at that level of practice. It's about advanced communication. It's about mitigating risk. Um, but it's also about managing risk because sometimes what we do has 
there is a risk to it so we have to manage that risk as well um, and really about you know what we expect at that level and then we've got the common oncology SIPs and this is because we wanted to make sure that anybody coming into these posts came qualified or finished the training at sort of an even keel of their oncology knowledge so we know a therapeutic radiographer has fairly good oncology knowledge but do we need improvement with our SAC knowledge for example if a nurse came in to be an advanced practitioner their critical care skills may be really good their SAC skills um, but perhaps they need more radiotherapy knowledge so it was about getting that baseline within the common oncology SIPs and then we've got the specific SIPs so if somebody's in SACT they can pick the two SACT ones if they're working in acute oncology they can pick that one if they're working in both they can pick all three if they're in radiotherapy then they have to pick 14 um, which is around radiological image analysis and being able to interpret the radiotherapy plan and, and have that awareness and then they can pick the other ones dependent on their role so they're very role dependent so we, we made them very flexible so what practitioners out in practice might find is that you know that there may be a service delivery and, and and they want to expand advanced practitioners don't stand still because what is you know what was advanced practice years ago is now common practice we have to move with the times and some practitioners may not have and they may not have because they didn't have the opportunity they didn't want to and that's absolutely fine but the framework then gives them objective and and I think that's what we got from the local evaluation was that there was structure and objective to training rather than it being sort of really ad hoc and, and, and trying to grab those things so yes there is 20 capabilities within the framework I imagine that there will be more it's a, it's a document that we can add to that we can flex that we can change um, so as we move into other areas, you know, we had a massive discussion about whether we included malignant haematology, which was we've gone backwards and forwards. I don't know how many times and it was, you know, it doesn't sit in non-surgical oncology. It sits in haematology, but it is a malignancy and it's like, you know, so you just backwards and forwards. And that may come into it at a later date. And we did the same thing with the technical roles. You know, do we include them? I can't imagine oh. the discussions and the hours of discussions because that's always a bit of a downside as well, isn't it? To having lots of contribution to any project Absolutely. work is every taking on board everyone's mm -hmm. opinion. Absolutely, but I think for me and Rick, we were absolutely we. I don't think we we didn't kind of budge as much as what everybody else did because the people who were working in those technical roles, yes, they may not be patient facing, but the contribution that they make to patient care at that level of practice is key to our delivery. You know, and and I know that sometimes the multi-professional framework can be a massive challenge to be able to map against those roles. And this is how sad I am that I know that it's 1.4 that everybody struggles with because it's the assessment one. And, you know, and it's the same in diagnostic radiography for reporting radiographers. You know, they don't see the patient, but they make a valuable contribution. And it's about looking at that 1.4 and saying the patient may not be in front of me but I make an assessment I make a clinical decision with the information that is provided in front of me and that may be somebody else's history taken the radiology the the bloods the all of the other information but also recognizing what information is missing what else do I need to make this decision 
and for, and for a lot of HPs, it's not about diagnosing a patient. It's about making the correct referral, doing the right thing for the next step. And we were really passionate about making sure that those individuals were represented in the, in the document. Whether we've got it right or not, I don't know. <laughs> but we definitely wanted it. No, just a quick question about sort of the framework and advanced practice, I suppose. How does advanced practice work for maybe what level you're at? So I'm a band seven and I think that my work and what I do is advanced practice. But I know in some in maybe in the nursing world, I've seen some job adverts recently, which a band six is an advanced practice role. What do you think about that? That was probably the question I didn't want you to ask me. <laughs> so we like we a bit of controversial band- stuff on here, Mo. You should know that. <laughs> <laughs> We know that banding is a massive issue. It is a huge issue. And the titles is a huge issue. And that was within Rick's work as well. And I'm sure Rick can add to add to that. There is a there is a new ESR document out. And they are the trusts have been challenged to chit to map the titles to that by some ridiculous date next year. Um and hopefully that will give some conformity. But for a lot of trusts, they use the word advanced to secure the higher bands. And I think we're well aware of the fact that that is an issue, but as a polit- it's a political hot potato. And as Health Education England, it's not something they can mandate. So for us, it, was not, it wasn't something we could put in the document. As much as we know that is an implementation issue, it's a challenge, it's a headache we're slightly bound by the fact that they can't you know get involved in that now from a professional body point of view that's where we then need to go to the the SOR and say what can we do would you agree we've always yeah we've always known that banding and titles was going to be very controversial I think from when we started the project we said that this would open a can of worms and it will and it is and it has let's just say I'd be really very frank but these questions are really important for advanced practitioners in in post these questions are really important for the managers because they need to get the money and the funding the business cases so these are honest conversations that they're having with us and Mel and I were very lucky to be invited to the recent Ray Therapy Service Manager um, uh, conference um, a couple of weeks ago and again as yourselves these are the questions they asked us and we had to be very honest and say to them it's you know it needs to be discussed at another level but we're here to support their staff we're here to support the whole notion of advanced practice and this is a a new thing that's going to help you know some of these issues you know professional identity is such a key issue in in um, AHP and therapeutic radiography Uh, titles um, bandings we know it's it's so there's so much disparity with all that across the different kind of services we will address it hopefully by this work and you know the, the flexibility of this curriculum framework will allow them to make have these serious conversations with their with their managers and see if the managers support them going forward I think, yeah. I think hopefully as well what the framework will do is it'll give it'll make us equitable with the other professions because one of the issues that we do have is that you know advanced practice in another profession might be way above what what the level we you know it all needs to be aligned um you know 
from Wick's work, I, you know, he, you had somebody in one area who was a consultant radiographer and doing half the job of somebody who was an ACP on a lower band somewhere else. And, you know, we need to be equitable within our own profession, but equally so across all of the professions as well. I'm just going to throw another hot potato in. All right, Rick. Right. <laughs> um, so obviously evidencing what we do is really important. Any Anyone who likes quality uh, assurance, things like that, and especially radiographers, we love you know, our documents to read, protocols to sign off, but accreditation. So I know on the SOR website, they've been redoing the bit for accreditation for a while now, I'm waiting for it to come back on, but um, it implies that you need to be at a band seven level to apply for accreditation with SOR. Um, and obviously for consultant practice, that has its own accreditation pathway as well. So that's, that's one of the hot potatoes I'm gonna throw in. But then there's also how, if there's one for radiographers accreditation process, why would someone else want to do the Health Education England one as well? And then I'm doing the ePortfolio route that I've gotten to the second cohort for. So that's three different things. Which one do I do? Oh my word, it's difficult, isn't it? Really, pass on to Mel at the moment because she's involved with the, the ePortfolio. But for me, it, see this as a positive. You know, we've got this, these all these resources that are out there to try and support the development of advanced practitioners. You know, we've even got the Education Career Framework coming out very soon for the College of Radiographers, which is going to be another key kind of resource that we're going to have to try and reflect. So at the moment, yes, you've got all these various kind of accreditation systems that we are we're aware of. But I think what the goal of this framework will try and do and hopefully influence is that we need to have a commonality so that if they have this curriculum framework, will it carry enough value and weight that we wouldn't have to go through a, a formal accreditation process? That's still up for discussion because, you know, the, the national consultation is going to reveal some of these kind of questions that we're anticipating. So I can't answer that question quite now, but you know these are the kind of nuances that we need to consider. You know we've really thought about some of these things. People are saying, "Well, you're duplicating work." We might be duplicating work, but actually we are refining it, making it better for someone like you who is going on different pathways to try and make it more aligned, more common, so that other people in the in the journey later on will, will actually know. Well, all I've got to do is this particular framework to actually warrant all the different frameworks that are out there under each of the professional bodies. So it's about trying, as, as Mel said, trying to make sure we have that kind of uh, alignment and that kind of commonality across all these different um, processes at the moment. But the goal is the same goal. They're all trying to achieve the same goal. So I guess with my Health Education England reviewer hat on, um, what so what the college is, try, is aiming to do is to align their accreditation process with Health Education England. Um, and it's at the moment it's not aligned there is conversations but that's kind of as far as I'm aware of of what's happening I think in the future what they would like to see is you would just do one but at the minute that that conversation is still ongoing and we, we don't know what the output of that will be in terms of the health education England supported e-portfolio route that is for individuals who may have completed an MSc but it's not in advanced clinical practice, or may have a number of level seven modules that you know can't make up an, a, a, an MSc, or they might be slightly have a, have a have a gap because there's a learner needs analysis that you have to do within that process. So obviously, they've just gone out for expressions of interest, um, 
I have done some work with Kerry Mills, who is our Cancer and Diagnostics National Programme Lead, and Professor, Professor Bev Snaith, who is um, obviously up in Bradford from the diagnostic perspective. And we've done some webinars together with Catherine from the, from the College of Radiographers to educate our community about the Supported ePortfolio route, why it's, why it's there and how you can use it to be accredited. So there's a lot of practitioners in trusts now being asked about is your programme being accredited or is your education and training being accredited? And, you know, Health Education England have been really challenged because there's a lot of advanced clinical practice programmes out there that then need accrediting and they're fully booked for next year. And there was a lot of the, um, I hate the word, but the generic, the not the profession specific programmes that went through. So for example, mine hasn't been through yet. And, you know, if you're going through a curriculum restructure or something like that, then they don't want you to have to do two accreditations. They want you to wait. So I've got people saying to me, are you going to accredit the programme? Well, yes, I will, but it's not going to be a fast fix. Um, and hopefully it'll go through as a legacy programme. So we're stuck in that limbo of the rock and the hard place. So I think if, if you've done a programme that's, that's accredited, then that's how you get your accreditation with Health Education England. Um, if you've got a bit, you know, if you've done advancing professional practice, for example, as an MSc or something else, then you can use the supported ePortfolio route to get equivalence of your education and training against the multi-professional framework. So that's me with me HEA hat on. So how do we think this uh, ACP accreditation um, is going to affect undergraduate training? Because I'm just thinking as an educator, there are things, and I know Mel and I have discussed this for years, that essentially therapeutic radiographers do have a lack of skills in certain areas compared to maybe a CNS or a physiotherapist. And, you know, is there... Is there, do you anticipate, going to be a need for some upskilling for anyone who has aspirations to go on to advanced practice? I think this is probably where it links in with Ascend. I don't know what you think, Rick. So I've got to remember what it stands for because they don't like an acronym. Um, so it's the Aspirant Education Development Framework. <laughs> So that looks at, um, you know, from the full pathway from support worker to consultant practice. And our framework hangs off Ascend as being sort of the specific framework from that. I think you're right. You know, we've talked about clinical skills for a long time and advanced um, physical assessment and consultation skill modules, also known as APACs. I have known that module nearly finish some therapeutic radiographers because you know, we, I don't know how you felt, Name, have you done that one? <laughs> you know, if you've got no clinical skill background and suddenly you've been able, you're taught them at advanced level, you know, there's nurses who come in and struggle because, yes, they've had some clinical skill training, but not to that extent. And we've also got to recognise, well, what do we use in practice as well? Because we get taught a lot in those modules, but actually, what do we use in practice? So I do think there's probably some changes that can happen for undergrad. Um, and I think if we wait and see what Ascend brings us, then that will probably help to inform those decisions. And I think the, the new education career framework with the College of Radiographers document is going to be key as well. And as you all know, as academics, uh, 
we have to ensure that we map against some of these kind of criteria, don't we, with our not just our SOPs and SETs, but also some of these other kind of um, resources from, from the professional bodies. And I would agree with you. I think the undergraduate training is going to change quite extensively going forward. It has to change. It has to go with the times. We just can't carry on doing... Uh, what we've done for for many years you know I always say to my students we just can't be these button pushers anymore we've got to showcase all this great skills that we have the autonomy the expert knowledge not just ray therapy but oncology and it's about enhancing our skills to that next level as well yes you know in undergraduate ray therapy we talk about how to review bloods how to do you know some of the investigations and the management that's fine but think about what's happening in clinical practice now Therapy to Enterprise is doing a lot more that we need to ensure that our undergraduate students are receiving and getting some of those kind of skills now so that when they get to the clinical practice at that level, they're already equipped, but actually they're enhancing it to the next level to become further experts. So I would be surprised if HIs that have ray therapy programs are not going to go with the time and change. I think it's it's happening very soon. The, the, the indication is that we need to change think as well they need to have as well as the clinical skill they need to have a greater awareness around acute oncology emergencies you know oncological emergencies that they can recognize if somebody comes in and they're not well and that we can act upon that um because you know that's about making the right decision the right referral at the right time and you know the education and career framework from the college is expecting every level practitioner to cover the four pillars this is not just going to be for advanced practice anymore. It's going to be all levels. I love the physical assessment module. Everyone knows I'm a nerd, but having to learn the full body inside and out and regurgitate it in 45 minutes we had was, yeah. Yeah, anyone who wants to know about it, like physical assessment, you, it's just about being able to physically assess any patient. So that acute oncology side, it's been so useful for me because although we have an acute oncology team, then normally they're booked out because our chemo ward has had to put patients on there for magnesium infusions or blood transfusions because there's no space and there's no staff but that means that when they come to us in radiotherapy it's me i'm i'm the acute oncology team with one of the nurses probably but then we have to create our own pathway to send them to a and e because there isn't any space and i've been in a and e recently in the corridor with the patient waited two hours with them because there's no space for them anyway it's quite terrifying but i think for me it's quite exciting that i can do that but as you said it's having the kind of the professional framework to back me up and say that I can work at that level but having that knowledge and kind of understanding now probably I'm probably more confident to do it um but yeah it, it is terrifying I suppose because as you said Rick it's we're always known as the button pushers so for me to be doing something like that is incredible but it is kind of like ah, do I really belong here I don't know but I'm enjoying it and that that came through in our evaluation as well though you know some of the trainees were saying you know they, they were getting um, a bit of grief from the other trainees because they weren't prescribing. And, you know, Rick will get sick of me saying this, but I have a saying of just because legally we can prescribe if we do the module doesn't mean we have to. You know, for some advanced practitioners, a PGD is enough. You know, because then the pressure, if somebody's then a non-medical prescriber, the pressure that they feel from somebody who can't find a consultant or can't find somebody to write them a prescription and they feel under pressure to, to write sign for something that's not in their scope of practice, you know, we're putting ourselves at risk. So why push somebody to be a prescriber if that's not actually required within their role? Can I ask quickly, so 
with advanced practice as well people always say you should do the physical assessment module and prescribing but then how does that work for as you said earlier the more technical people who maybe like diagnostic radiographers I i'm just trying to understand for anyone listening because obviously that's easy for me because i'm in a review team and what we did was the so the common oncology sips so we've included things like SACT and acute oncology and things like that because what we feel is that if you're going to make a clinical decision you need that knowledge you need to have had that experience you need to know about it what we did for those in technical roles is that we dropped the entrustment level so the way that they assess for registrars is through entrustment levels and what we did was set for, for the majority is it's set at three which is they can work under indirect supervision so they can, you know you can you can do the task as long as there's a doctor on the end of the phone four is then free for our consultant practice so if the framework evolves then we can move to four which is obviously they work at consultant level so what we did for those um, common oncology sips for those in those technical roles was drop the entrustment level back so you know they're not going to have to do it as part of their scope of practice but they have to do it as part of the training to inform their clinical decision making mm. and it's that kind of as Mill said those those common oncology sips and having that well-rounded knowledge about those kind of key areas to make sure they're kept abreast with what's going on with their kind of oncology knowledge as well which is crucial so i'm not throwing a hot potato in but i know something that people will ask is about the overall workforce and the impact that having advanced practice poses um you know where does it sit in terms of ensuring that there are enough therapeutic radiographers who are still available to treat whilst also retaining staff who have aspirations to move to advanced practice roles yeah that is a massive hot potato isn't it (laughs) I couldn't let Numan go with just throwing all of those in. I just had to get one in. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's actually quite a, a really relevant question, Joe, because one of the managers mentioned that to us in the recent Ray Therapy Services Manager meeting. You know, they're talking about their service, saying that everyone it's going to be a time when someone they're going to say we just want to be advanced practitioners and no one wants to do the actual treatment of the patients, etc. I think it's a difficult question to answer because we don't know ourselves. We we know that. Um, the service is key. It's always key in terms of what skill sets is needed. Okay, and for me, I always think it as what is the skills mix that's required. Now, the skills mix within every service is really much dependent on the leadership that you have, so that the, the leaders were able to identify what is the skills mix that we need to have in place to be ordered to run this service efficiently, effectively for our patients. So. It's about that signpost, that messaging is that, yes, we want all our therapeutic radiographers to have ambitions to be advanced practitioners, consultant practitioners, etc. But we also have to remember that there is a service that needs to be run. And it's very much about therapeutic radiographers knowing that there is time for them to be able to work at that kind of um, treatment level to upskill themselves ready for them to actually make that jump later on if they want to. We know that not everyone wants to do advanced practice. We know that. It's an opportunity for them to be part of advanced practice if they wish to be it. So for us, it's that opportunity as part of career progression is what we're trying to identify here and that there are opportunities out there for people who have those aspirations. But as service managers at the moment, you know how difficult it is in the NHS with what's happening. They have to be really mindful of having the right skills mix and the right skill sets. We know that AP roles, consultant roles play a huge part in this but we also know that treatment rads 
creature and rat have an equally important part as well. So for me, that's how I would kind of answer that question. I don't know, Mel, your interpretation of it might be very different, though. I think we've just got to be really careful that we're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, for a lot of people, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, we've got a consultant oncologist backlog. We need someone to step into that task. We've got the expertise. That's therefore we should do that. But then we leave everywhere else short. We know there's not enough therapeutic radiographers coming through. So, but highlighting that there is a progression is something that attracts them to come into the profession. But I think the other thing that's really important is in career progression, it's not just advanced practice. You know, they can go into research, they can go into leadership, they can go into management, they can go into academia. It's about highlighting the vast array of opportunities that therapeutic radiographers can have. And I think the challenge is that when you are head down, running in and out of the room, and I know I felt like this as well, if you feel like there's no option to get out, then it makes everything feel 10 times worse. But once you realize that there is things that you can do, it makes things a little bit better. And I think even if you were a band five or you're a band six, and we all get obsessed about what we're getting paid for and things like that, but to see it as strengthening CV, strengthening ourselves personally and professionally, which is hard to do when you when you're working, you know, flogging, you know, as as everybody is, but it's about recognizing what we can actually achieve within our profession, with our with our degree, with the opportunities that we have. Um, and that there's not just one way, there's numerous different ways. And that starts from way when they start the course, even way before they come on the course, and how we promote our profession of these, as Mel said, these wonderful opportunities that people can go into, and there's different kind of pathways they can take. But starting so early on in that kind of journey for them and knowing what's beyond when they qualify is so crucial, for, I think. So us as... Um, qualified staff, academics, practitioners have a have an obligation to make sure we promote that and and signpost it to our to our students. You know, it's so crucial. Um, we have we need to have an investment in our students. So they understand what's out there when they qualify and what's available for them and the opportunities for them as well to go and grab it. Just to kind of catch on to that, how, what what do people do then if they're a student in a department that doesn't have advanced practice regularly there, like the roles there? Because obviously, then it's the people in the department. Say, for example. Just for argument's sake, it's me trying to develop a role. How you know? How do you get people on board? So you might have a manager on board, but it's not really always up to them because the clinical staff need to be accepting of it and accept that it's about, as you said, career progression and not just helping them out when they don't want to do something. I think you start from the basics. Really, is why have these roles been created? What is it that these roles are trying to do? And if you kind of go back to the basics of that, this role is trying to support the patient going forward and showing the impact it has. It's about then raising that profile. So when I did my research, there was lots of challenges from people saying, well, how is advanced practice going to help me? How is consultant practice going to help me? And we don't want it here. There was quite a lot of negativity in some of the, the interviews I did. But the way that we kind of they got around it was the buy-in really from for the impact that they could read about they could see about the work that was happening out there from other centers and the only way that we can get that was the advanced practitioners consultant practitioners actually showcasing what they were doing because some of them are reluctant to do it some of them don't want to do it others are just it's not part of their kind of identity in doing it but the more that we showcase 
all this great work that people are doing, it allows others then who don't have advanced practice in departments to hopefully then get the buy-in, get a sense that actually we can have this in our department, there is a case for it, and, dr- and kind of drive that forward really. It's that kind of visibility and that showcase and that promotion, which I think is so important. So going back to the basics as of that is, is probably one of the ways that we can get around that particular area. There's always going to be resistance, don't get me wrong. It's not always going to be the case of everyone's advanced practice. We are fully aware of that. And that's the reason why Mel and I know about the politics and the and the whole, you know, opening a can of worms. We know about some of the issues out there. But what we're trying to say is that there are resources out there now that demonstrate the impact. There's resources now for advanced practitioners with frameworks. It's about just seeing what's there for them to perhaps use as a platform to perhaps grow that in their departments or or other services as well. I think for anyone in a leadership position who gets an opportunity to talk to patients about having to wait for bloods or wait for an assessment or wait for a doctor to come down from a ward round will appreciate how these ACP roles could revolutionise patient experience, which is what we are all trying to do and strive for. And I know through talking to patients through RadChat, you know, it is the the waiting, the opportunities where they get the anxiety because they have conditions that, you know, might not necessarily be related to their cancer, but they're on lots of different pathways and you know that adds complexities to our patients we know now that you know cancer patients are surviving treatments they're surviving their cancer but living with and beyond with consequences and actually I think I can really see how ACPs are going to revolutionize the oncology pathway for patients um, and accessing care that potentially they may not have been able to access because there wasn't the workforce there that had the knowledge or the skills. So it's a really, really exciting time for therapeutic radiographers. And I, I think we should definitely thank you on behalf of all of the workforce um, for kind of tackling what is an immense job. And I can only imagine the number of hours of discussions and going back and forth and consultations that you've had to do. And You've still got the big one to come yet, but hopefully it'll be nice and smooth and an easy transition for you all. So we said we had to keep a podcast episode to under an hour. We're nearly on the cusp. We always end with top tips. So Rick, any top tips for any listeners? I'm presuming that, you know, for this episode particularly, you'll have lots of therapeutic radiographers and AHPs listening in. Um, so what would you advise anyone listening? I think it goes back to that original point I made about, you know, if someone's interested in this area, they're an advanced practitioner, whether they're meeting the, the role is, do have honest conversations with their managers now. See what is it they need to do. Have a look at some of the resources that's out there. The College of Radiographers have got some resources. Health Education England have got lots of resources under their Centre of Advancing Practice. Read around it and see what they can do to try and and ensure that they are getting the the skill sets they need and and work with their managers about training and upskilling, etc. And I think that's really crucial to have those kind of conversations now. And um, we also want to, again, I think Mel and I, as part of coming on here as well, one of the the things that we wanted to was to really kind of promote and showcase the role of therapeutic radiographer and the wider HP workforce as well, to be honest with you, under the kind of advanced practice umbrella. And we hope that we are allowing people to understand a bit more about the role, about uh, the work, about the qualities, about the framework, 
and not just the resources, but to see the whole concept of arts practice. And I think that's for me is, is that, that kind of last message really. Mel, any top tips for anyone? I was just thinking there as Rick was speaking actually that it's kind of like taking one of the six C's for yourself as a professional and actually just having courage. You know, if you're, have a, if you're a trainee, just have the courage to challenge you know, have the courage to to seek out the experiences that you feel that you need for your training. But equally so, don't step back. You know, um, even with the development of the framework, we've some people were reluctant to go onto the ward to get that experience around acute oncology. But once they recognised the reasons why we had it in the framework, then they were more accepting of it. And I think, you know, all of that experience all of your professional experience. So don't try and jump to be an ACP at two years. The amount of experience that you can get, that's why we say three or four years experience. That is a foundation, that is your foundation building block. So just really, just have the courage to seek out opportunity. If that's where you want the long-term plan, just, you know, can I go and work on the ward or can I go and help out here or just expand that knowledge base and don't be afraid to to push that challenge if that's what the service needs well um and i suppose when you're in those situations where you're on a ward and they say oh who are you where are you from and you go i'm a therapeutic radiographer and they go what's one of those um it's great opportunity for us to promote isn't it our amazing profession so thank you so much for listening to rad chat your hosts today have been jay mcnamara and norman jolka anderson a huge thank you again to our amazing guests Mel and Ricardo. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Rhea Crichton, discussing her experience of cancer and her amazing career and PhD study. So thank you for listening and take care.